Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope this message is a blessing to you and helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's Pastor Brandon with this message. Father, thank you, Lord, for what you have done uh, throughout this whole year as we've studied satanic warfare and spiritual warfare that we're undergoing, and we still are undergoing it. We're still having to deal with it, and it's going to get worse, Father. So this is why we want to dig deep, understand these things, so that we can protect ourselves, protect our families from the spiritual ravages of this war. Bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're on number five, I believe, and uh, we're now going to talk about how Satan sows unbelievers among believers. So the the passage where this point point comes out is in the Matthew 13 parables, and remember, when you're in Matthew 13, this this comes after... The, uh, the rejection of Israel's leaders of the Messiah in Matthew 12, okay? So the, um, they commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They've committed the unpardonable sin. And at that point, he turns his attention to the apostles. And then what he's doing in the parables in Matthew 13 is explaining what the mystery kingdom will look like in his absence. Because... Uh, the mystery kingdom, because it's called mystery, means it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. So when you see the word mystery, it means that it's now being revealed in the New Testament. And this mystery kingdom aspect is what we call the invisible kingdom of the Messiah. The messianic kingdom is the physical return of the Messiah, physical ruling reigning in the physical kingdom. But we're in what's called the messian- sorry, the mystery kingdom. And what does that mean? It means the kingdom is invisible, but rules in the hearts of real believers, okay? So that's the mystery kingdom, okay? So in the mystery kingdom parables, if you look at them, uh, there's seven major parables, and there's two little ones. Here's what I want you to note. In Matthew 13, the seven major parables parallel the seven churches of the book of Revelation, okay? So parable number one, the sower parable, will go with the church of Ephesus, okay? And so you, you, you do a parallel as you work down them, and the seven parables will match the seven churches in Revelation, okay? And so in this parable, this is talking about how Satan will infiltrate the church, because he's going to persecute the church from outside, but he's also going to uh, persecute the church inside by infiltration. Okay, so the, the passage I'm referring to is Matthew 13, and I, I should have had it on my screen, but I didn't put it in there. Um, the parable of the wheat and tares, this is Matthew 13, 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven, no, he's talking about the mystery kingdom. This is what it's going to be like. It's like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So uh, the interpretation is the man who sowed good seed in his field. Messiah will interpret the good man that that sowed the good seed is the son of God. 
okay? It's him. He's sowing the seeds, okay? The seeds obviously represent the word of God, the truth, right? He's sowing those seeds. Now, what he says, and, and the seed is in the field. Now, the idea of the seed, basically the field is the world, okay? Is, um, or to narrow it down, you can make it what's called Christendom, okay? Now, Christendom, when I say Christendom, that's different than saying the true church, because under the umbrella of Christendom, there are plenty of people who claim to be Christians, but are not. And so the term, when I use the term Christendom, it refers to the unbelieving and believing elements in the church. So like, for instance, to properly interpret the book of Revelations, chapter 2 and 3, about the seven churches, you have to have the understanding that Jesus is speaking to both types of people in Christendom. He is speaking to the unbelieving person in Christendom that thinks they're a Christian, and he's also speaking to the believer. And let me add a, probably a third category. He's also speaking to a believer who is stuck in the very thing that church is doing. So I, I should add a third category to that. So there's believers that have overcome, there are believers that are not overcoming, and then there's fake believers in the seven churches. So you have three elements. And when you interpret Revelation 2 and 3, you have to see, like, line by line, what verse is referring to who. Otherwise, you'll get very confused if you don't understand he's speaking to three people simultaneously. And it depends on what he's saying. Anyway, notice what it says. But while men slept... His enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. While men slept, this happened. What, what could that be a reference to? While men slept. Then the enemy comes in at night, unsuspecting, when you're not aware, when the people are asleep. That's when the enemy infiltrates not in the word. It's, it, it, first, it, it, it's not like the physical sleep. It's a spiritual slumber. Okay, It's a spiritual slumber. And when believers go into a spiritual slumber, which, and, and, and that would be the opposite of when God says, or Jesus says, watch therefore. Watch therefore. There's too many commands, or there's a plethora of commands that say, watch, therefore. That means to stay spiritually awake, okay? Watch, therefore. So when the individual or the church or the people or the denomination stops watching, then the enemy comes in at night, infiltrates, and spreads his seeds. Now, what is associated to watch? What, what is that about? So if you go to the Olivet Discourse, and remember, the Olivet Discourse has to deal with eschatology. It has to deal with the, the tribulation period, right? In Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And he says this. Let me get my little tab so I don't lose this place here. Thank <clears throat> you. 
I can find it. Or is it? Okay. Verse 45 of Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Notice the servant's responsibility while the master is away is to serve food to the household. You following this? To give the food in due season. That's called the servant, the believer, while Messiah is away, is to make sure he spiritually feeds the others. How do you spiritually feed somebody? You get it? Okay, watch this. Blessed is, uh, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, find, will find him so doing. Blessed is the servant, blessed is the believer who is serving meals to other believers. Who is giving them food, spiritual food, right? Assuredly, I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all his goods, rule and reign with Messiah as a reward for feeding his people. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him at an hour he is not aware of and will cut him into two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a Jewish idiom for extreme regret. Okay, what is this referring to? Because it's a reference or, or, or an application to believers, both servants, obviously, when it uses the term servants, refers to believers, so there is a good believer who feeds, and there's a bad believer who does what? He has an evil heart. My master's been delayed, so he begins to beat his fellow servants instead of feed them. What is the idea of beating fellow servants? It's to not care for the others in the household, to treat them bad. To, treat, to ignore them, to, to not, not, not do what you're supposed to do to serve other believers. In fact, the person gets on power trips, and instead of serving others, they have others serve them. It's the misuse of religion. Now, when I use the word religion, I'm pulling it from James, James uh, the book of James, where he says the proper order of religion is to take care of widows and orphans. That's the proper use of, of religion. Well, what does he mean by that? The proper use of religion in Christianity is that the servant leader serves others. When you have believers who turn that on its head, they start practice, practicing Nicolaitanism, and they start lording it over people, and they become an authoritarian dictator in a church, and people serve them. And that's constantly happening. Okay, so what happens is this. Then the person starts uh, uh, fellowshipping uh, with drunkards, it says. So basically what happens is those Christians start acting like the world. 
They start acting like they're an unbeliever. They start doing things that an unbeliever would do, okay? So what happens? The master of that servant will come in a day when he is not looking for him at an hour he's not aware of. That means he's not watching spiritually. He's unaware. So what happens is when, you, when an evil servant, a, a believer does this, they put themselves to sleep, so to speak. They're not spiritually watching, and that's why his return takes them off guard. They are not expecting it, and it actually they will find themselves in shame, according to 1 John chapter 2, and I think it's in verse 28 somewhere in that neighborhood, that believers who are asleep and are not watching will be in shame at the Lord's return. Now, this shame means that he hasn't been watching, but, but what does that imply? He's been hostile to other believers, or she has, and they haven't done the things necessary to provide food for other people, right? They live in riotous living. So what happens to them? Well, because they're asleep, he says, I will cut them in two and appoint him a position with the, the hypocrites. The idea of I will cut him in two or I will cut the individual in half, again, is a Hebrew idiom that refers that the individual will get a major tongue lashing from the Messiah who will slice and dice them with the truth of how they acted. And then after he slices and dices them up with his word, they will be assigned in the messianic kingdom to a position in the same category of the hypocrites. They will not rule and reign they will have a stigma through the Messianic age of a hypocrite. They're real believers, but they're hypocrites. Okay, so with that background, that's the understanding of being asleep. Now, Jesus drew off of this, and he used another passage that talked about let me see if I can pull it out of Revelation. So hang on with me. Hang on. I'm stringing some things together real quick. Behold, I am coming as a thief. This is Revelation 17. Blessed is he who watches, and then he adds, and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. Now, that's a, he puts another twist on this, to watch. Now, what does that mean? He's saying, look, if you decide that you're going to check out spiritually, and you're not going to help anybody out in this era. So whether, whether, whatever you're preaching from the pulpit, whatever you're teaching in your Bible study, whatever you're doing, you decide not to feed my people. Instead, lord it over them, and that puts you in a state of not watching. Um, be careful, because when I come, I'll find you naked. And, and that's where the shame comes, that you're naked when I find you. Okay. Now, where is this drawing off of? This is drawing off of what was happening in the first century temple. And in the first century temple, where, the, where Jesus got this parable for is what would happen at night, they had the priests who would be on guard in the, in the sanctuary of the, the taber, sorry, temple, and they would have to ensure that the menorah stayed lit, 
They would be guarding the temple that intruders or anything couldn't get in, but the key issue is to keep the light going, to make sure the light is going. So they had the concourses of Levitical priests that went in there. Usually you probably serve once a year for one week. And in your, as you were in there, if you had the night watch, your job was to watch the menorah, watch to make sure nothing came in that temple that shouldn't be in that temple, and that implied that you had to stay awake. So, to ensure that the Levitical priests stayed awake during the night watch, they were always aware that there could be a night, a night visit from the high priest. And he could come at any point in time. They didn't know when the high priest would show up, and that kept them alert and not going to sleep because the high priest could show up, and if he found them asleep, here's what he would do with them. If they were down on the ground sleeping, the high priest would then take a torch and light that priest's garments on fire. No joke. So once he did that, the Levitical priest that is sleeping, obviously, whether he smelled the smoke or he felt the burn, okay, either way, all of a sudden would wake up and the immediate reaction would be what? To disrobe, to take off all his clothes because his clothes are on fire. And hence, that Levitical priest in his shame, would run out of the temple naked as a jaybird. In shame, in humiliation, because he was caught sleeping. And so now when Jesus says in Revelation 17, and I'm, I'm coming as a thief like the high priest. You don't know what night I'm going to show up. Blessed is he who's watching and basically stays spiritually awake and keeps his garments. Because what will happen? The high priest would burn the guy's garments, right? So that's where the idea keeps his garments and walk, lest what? He walk naked and they see his shame. Now, now translate this now into spiritual reality. You got the parable, or not the parable, of, of, but what would happen in the first century. Now let's translate that into uh, when Messiah finds believers asleep at, his, at the rapture. The concept of being naked or having your garments burned is related to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says if you build with the wrong materials of wood, hay, and stubble, that will be burned. So at the Bema seat, there is a, it's called the judgment seat because those works that are, that are no good will be burned up. And quite frankly, someone that is asleep in their Christianity and then they get raptured, it means that they're going to lose rewards and the loss of rewards is figuratively being naked. And hence, shame to the individual at the Bema seat because they're without rewards. It's a big deal. Hence, that's why he says, 
make sure basically you keep your garments. Now what are these garments? Now let me do another tie. It all connects. It's amazing how it all connects. Uh, one more. Ah, okay, here we go. This is Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice. This is obviously the second coming, right? And give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife, which is the church, has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in what? Fine linen, clean and bright. Now, then you say, well, what, what is that, those garments? What are they for? He says, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What did he, did, he, did he say the fine linen is for salvation? No, they are for the righteous acts of the saints. These are the robes of reward. Now, now do you understand what it means to be naked without clothing in heaven? It means that you're unrewarded and you're shameful for what happened on this earth. Now, obviously, we get past that, obviously. But I'm, I'm strictly staying at the Bema Seat. I'm not going beyond that into New Jerusalem or anything. But the shame is associated to not having the, reward, the robes of rewards. Now, the person will have the robe of righteousness right? The robe of righteousness is different than the robes of reward. The robe of righteousness has to do with Christ giving you his righteousness and then covering you with that. And so you do wear the robe of righteousness, but there will be an outer tunic. And that outer tunic represents that that saint has been rewarded for what they have done. So there's two robes, the robe of righteousness and then the robe of rewards. Hence, Let's go back. So since we have that, then being without rewards is connected to being spiritually asleep for the believer. And when that believer is spiritually asleep, he will not do what is proper in his religious or expression of his Christianity. He will abuse other people. He will rule over people. And it basically starts acting like the world. Now, now let's go back to Matthew 13. Any questions before, before I, hold on. I'm sorry, but it's all interconnected. So, but while men slept, not spiritually awake, not going to be rewarded, what happened when they went spiritually asleep? An enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So the culprit for allowing enemy infiltration into the church was believers who are spiritually asleep. 
That's how apostasy happens. The believer is completely checked out. They're not on the watch. They're not looking for wolves. They're not, uh, uh, I don't know, looking for the enemy, basically. They're just asleep, going through their cotton candy version of Christianity, apparently. But why they're caught up in their cotton candy version of Christianity, the enemy is right behind them and is infiltrating, and they don't even realize it. Okay, continue on. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So let's explain what happens there. Now here's the thing. If you've ever looked at tares in the wheat, and you're talk I'm talking specifically about darnels, okay? So you have a darnel and you have a wheat. When they grow up together, they're the same color. They're green, okay? They look almost identical. And from afar away, when you're just looking at a wheat field, you can't tell the difference in the springtime or in the summer between the two. You can't. That's the deception of it, okay? You can't tell the difference, but let's continue on. When can you tell the difference? So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us to go and gather them up? Now, the idea is this is the angels. He interprets this as the angels. And the angels are saying, what happened here? And Messiah is saying, no, no, no. This is what I'm allowing in Christendom. My church that I form will not be entirely pure. There's a remnant element that is entirely, but for the most part, the church will have a mixed mob inside of it. And that's the same thing with Israel, right? When they came out of Egypt, they had a, it shouldn't be a mob, multitude. They had a mixed multitude in the crowd. And that mixed multitude implies tares. Tares. But it's the believers who are not watching that allow the tares in. Because believers who are alert don't allow that to happen. They take care of business. Okay. Do you want us to go and gather them up? He said, no. Lest while you gather up the tares, you will also uproot the wheat with them. Okay? You'll uproot the wheat with them. It's the idea. Who are the wheat? Real believers in Christendom, right? But he's saying, no. Here's the thing. He says, I don't want you to uproot them right now. I don't want you to, to, to get, because in, in doing so, you're going to hurt the wheat. So here's what would happen in a field. If you had a darnel growing next to a wheat, if you pulled that darnel, the roots and everything is, is wrapped around the other pieces of wheat. So you pull the darnel, you're going to pull out wheat as well. You're going to pull out the whole plant. So you don't want to do that. You have to let them grow up together because you'll destroy the wheat. Now, the practical implications of this is, this, is what? He's going to let them grow up with us so it doesn't hurt you and I. Oh, well, how would it hurt you and I if angels just came through and started picking people apart? Out of here, you're out of here, you're out of here, you're out of here, you're out of here. What, 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 what would that do to you? Well, how would that hurt us? Because he doesn't want to damage the wheat. Family, Maybe. 
So he's preserving something for you because he doesn't want to hurt you. And it, it is to your benefit to, be, to grow up with the Darnells. Now, the benef- uh, one of the things to spare you from sorrow, obviously, would be if he just came out and revealed that person is not saved in your family, nor will they ever be. Now, God knows that thing, but that's what we're talking about. What if you knew that? And that was your son. That was your daughter. That was your, your mom, your dad. And, and an angel came and said, hey, I got a word from the Lord. They'll never be saved. They're going to hell. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. You actually couldn't live like that. You couldn't live. It would be so devastating you would come to pieces knowing that. Because the thing that continues to get you going is hope that the person may get saved on their deathbed or whatnot. You do not want to know what God knows. You do not want to know what he knows. Because he knows who's real and who isn't and who's coming to faith and who isn't. Now, he doesn't determine that. That's Calvinism. But he definitely knows. And he knows who's not ever coming to him. And he knows who is. And because of that, that information is too much for you to handle. You would come apart if you knew that your family, that you had unsaved people and they're never going to be saved, ever. You couldn't bear that. But how is that good for you? What's the benefit, though? I know that that stops the sorrow, right? But what is the benefit of allowing a tear to grow up with the wheat, Well, yeah, you're evangelizing. Yeah, absolutely. You're doing, you're doing your spiritual disciplines with them and everything. Yeah, right over there, Stuart. Brett, like, let Brett, Brett get the, the mic. It, it helps maintain the family and community structure. Good. And that's one of the key aspects. In, in order to have a proper uh, society and a proper culture, You've got to ha- maintain a family. Do you know what happens to people when they're married to unbelievers, how their marriage goes? It doesn't go well. That's why we tell people, look, you're not to be unequally yoked by marrying an unbeliever. It, you will get torpedoed at some point in time. And yeah, are there exceptions to the rules? Yes, absolutely. But they're minor exceptions. The majority who marry unbelievers, I know the biblical principle, and so do you. Bad company corrupts good character. The unbeliever will always pull down the believing spouse every time, for the most part. And what does it do? It causes dysfunction in a family unit. So what happens when there's dysfunction in a family unit? It starts affecting society. That's why all of our crime are from individuals that don't have dads. Okay, that's the problem. And no one wants to say that, you know, why, why all those in prisons don't have, da- uh, have, have problems with their fathers. And because, you know, apparently that's, you can't say those things anymore, apparently. But, it, it, you, you, so Stuart's right, you, you will start having a breakdown in society. Because what, what was the Corinth believing women wanting to do in requesting something to Paul about being married to an unbelieving spouse? What did they want to do? They were ready to get out of Dodge. 
Once they got saved, the first thing the Corinth women wanted to do is leave their husband because he was an unbeliever. And what does Paul tell them to do? You need to stay in that relationship and hope that you will sanctify the family, maybe he'll come, or something like that. But the real key in that is if you had rapid divorce because you were married to an unbeliever, it's going to degrade the society more and more. Furthermore, how are kids raised? Best thing is a mom and a dad, right? If you start having dysfunction, then it messes up the kids. So there's a lot of things involved. So Stuart's hitting the nail on the head. Furthermore, furthermore, one other aspect of growing up among tares is that your skill set in identifying problems with a person is sharpened. God wants you to, be, to discern. Now, you can't read the heart of an individual, right? You can't read the heart. But if an individual claims to be, be a believer, then I have to look at his behavior, not what he says, but what he does. And, I, and based on the behavior, I can at least put him in several categories. Worldly, carnal, uh, Laodicea. Um, what are the other categories? immature, and then you obviously have the spiritual category, the mature category. So based on that, if the person is professing to know Christ, I can at least put them in one of these categories and say you're acting worldly, you're acting carnal, you're acting Laodicea, you're acting whatever. I can at least put them in that category. But even though I have these categories, because of this parable, I still have to reserve the other category, and that is they may not be real. Okay? Now, the Calvinists will make it a black and white. Well, they're not saved or they are saved. And it's not that way. It's, that's one category, but there's all these other categories of what they could be as a believer. Anyway, Karen. Pastor Brandon, if I thought my family uh, was not going to be saved, there would be no reason for me to witness to anybody. Right. Because the evangelism goes out the door. Been, it's been made, and I don't bother to witness to them. So. That's right. And it's so you good become, that we don't know because we have hope. That's right. It gives you hope. And that gives you the ability to keep moving forward in your evangelism, discipleship, and praying for people. But you're right. It, it would damage us so bad spiritually yeah. that we wouldn't function correctly. Yeah. You can see the implications of that. Yeah. So good point, Karen. Excellent point. So those who are awake are watching now, one of the things that when you watch, when you watch other people, stop listening to what they're saying and watch what they do, okay? Because people will fool you with their mouths, but their actions will identify what they actually believe. And James is making that connection. You want to read somebody? Just watch how they live. Don't listen to how flowery their Christian speech is. Oh, I love Jesus, right? How many times do you have to hear people say things like that? I love Jesus, and they brag about how much they love Jesus. Really, because Jesus said you didn't have to brag about how much you love them. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. And that means you're not saying a word. You're just obeying him, and it's pretty silent. So when I see somebody have to brag about their relationship with the Lord, they don't have one. Because if they did, they would keep their mouth shut, and they'd just obey, that's all it is. So 
so in identifying this, let's continue on. Let both grow together, and here's the timing element, until the harvest. At the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Ha, the timing element, thank you. So he's saying, no, let them grow up to har- until harvest. Harvest would be in the fall. Prophetically, how many more feasts do we have as far as the feasts of Israel are concerned? We have seven feasts. How many more need to happen in fulfillment for the, the whole thing? Yeah, back there. Three? Go Three. ahead, Larry. Get him a, back there, Gabriel. Microphone. Uh, three, I believe, uh, starting with Feast of Trumpets. Yes. And what time of the year do they appear? In the fall. Fall. When is harvest? Fall. You see how it's all connected? Messiah has satisfied the first four spring feasts of the Jewish calendar. The three remaining, he will satisfy, and they will happen at harvest or the fall season, so to speak. Not literally, but I'm I'm talking about the fall season is harvest. The spring season is planting, right? So now you have the harvest. So what did he say this is going to happen? It happens at the harvest. We'll separate them out at the harvest. Oh, so when you look at the three feasts remaining, they refer to the last days. Hence, the last days will reveal who is legit and who is not. And let me ask you this. Are you now living in the last days? Yes, and that's not just me wanting to live in the last days. That is according to Matthew 24, verse 7, when nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That is the idea of world war, and that is the sign that the last days has begun. We're in the last days. It began in World War I because that's what Messiah said. When you see world war, then the last days have begun. So we're legitimate living. That means we are in the harvest season of the prophetic calendar. And therefore, it is telling you the closer we get to going home, the more clear it will be who is legit and who is not. That, my friends, is why you're seeing the split in the church today. It's because the great harvest is now happening. And God is now revealing the tares among the wheat. So when you see, you know, the drag queen pastor giving drag queen story hour to a Sunday school class, what does that tell you? He's being revealed, right? When the churches go woke, it is being revealed. Now, again, it could be revealing that they're an unbeliever, 
playing the game, or it could reveal they're Laodicea, they're carnal, they're worldly, they're immature, whatever. But you have to put in all those categories. So let me ask you this. Are you surprised now of who you're seeing apostatize? Because what you will see is people who were once so-called legitimate that you trusted and are not to be trusted anymore at all. That's harvest time. Okay? So let me ask you this. With the way that things are going on in the world, and you can read the handwriting on the wall, so to speak, it's going to get worse for the church. Now, the rapture could happen tonight, but if the rapture happens closer to the tribulation, guess what? You're going to see a whole mess of stuff. And why do you think that God is now putting the church in a very difficult position? Because here's what I have from Christians all the time. I didn't think I would be here this long and see all this. And I said, well, buckle up. You might see more. Um, so, so why hasn't he raptured us? Because he's wanting us to see something. He's wanting us to see harvest time. He, wanted, he wants to see, show us who was in the trenches with us and who wasn't. We just saw it two years ago. Look, and I agree with Sharam. If that church shut down for an entire year, that is already telling you something about the, the individual. I'm not saying they're unbelievers. I'm just saying there's something wrong spiritually with the person. Okay? I'm just saying that. And what could you expect going forward when the government starts putting more things on the church? Will you think they will repent and not comply, or will they continue to go along? My hunch is there might be a few that, that saw what they did and they woke up, but there's going to be a whole mess of people that continue to go along with what the government tells them to do because of the issues of being tares and Laodicea or whatever because the harvest is now happening. I'm a little shocked what I'm seeing. I didn't realize it would be this bad. I didn't realize I would see all of this. I didn't realize how easy it was to, de to, to uh, deceive people in the church. But what did I say? When they were asleep, the enemy came in and sowed seeds. And when believers checked out, then they had people come into the seminaries. They had people coming in behind this pulpit. They had people getting into their, their Bible study groups or whatever, getting into leadership positions in a church or denomination or whatever, and those people infiltrated. They infiltrated. Now, if you want to know the infiltration of how that happens, Matthew 13 talks about it. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air nest in its branches. That parable seems simple, but he's talking about enemy infiltration. The parable of the mustard seed is the parable that Christianity, Christendom, will start very small. It started with 12 apostles. 
And then it grew from there. And over time in church history, the, the Christendom mustard seed will turn into a mustard plant or tree. And it will become very large. It'll have immen- uh, uh, immense growth. But then he says, the birds, of the, uh, the birds of the air will come and nest in its branches. I already know what the birds are because he interprets that in the first parable that the birds are the, the emissaries of Satan who take the seed. So when he says that Christendom will become like a large mustard tree, he says then the birds will go and sit in its branches. If the birds are the emissaries of Satan, guess what he's trying to say? They will infiltrate inside of Christendom. Okay? And what will they do once the birds, will they just sit there on the perch? No, he explains this in another parable. Another parable spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid three measures of meal till it was all leavened. What's that about? So once they're infiltrated, he says, this, is, this will be the operation that they do. A woman, picture a woman kneading dough, and she creates three pieces of dough that she's going to bake, okay? So there's three of them. Anyway, the woman then introduces leaven into the three loaves. Again, leaven represents sin in the Bible. So this woman is introducing sin into three aspects of Christendom. What are the three aspects of Christendom? Well, if you look at church history, it's very easy to see. The church split between Catholicism and Orthodox early on in church history. Orthodox represents one loaf. Roman Catholicism represents the second loaf. And then what happened to what came out of Roman Catholicism? The Protestant Reformation. Protestants represent the third loaf. So in all of Christendom, you can, you can slice Christendom and divide it up into three loaves. Protestantism, Catholicism, and Orthodox. That's it. Okay? And the, so this woman is introducing leaven into Orthodox. She's even introducing leaven into Catholicism, Church of Thyatira, and she's introducing leaven into the Protestants as well. Let me ask you this. Why is a woman used in the parable? Because of Eve? This leaven, this woman is doing a very wicked thing. This is Zechariah chapter 5. This is Revelation 17 and 18. It is none other than the harlot of Babylon. Because the woman is doing something negative to the three loaves. It is the whore of Babylon, who is the mother of harlots, that has infiltrated all three branches of Christendom. And let me ask you this. Once the harlot introduces leaven into each loaf, what does leaven do? 
it spreads until the entire loaf has leaven in it. And she's done that with Orthodox. She's done that with Catholicism. And she's almost complete in Protestantism. And the churches in Christendom that are not believers and who are following the whore and following her wicked ways, because they're not believers, because their tares will be left behind, hopefully they will get saved and wake up after that, but the majority won't, and they will come under the banner of the whore of Babylon in the tribulation period. So the counterfeit church right now is being revealed to you you are now watching the counterfeit church that will hook up with the whore of Babylon and with Islam and with Hinduism and everything else. Okay? So, with that being said, what, what is this, this idea? He goes, Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers first, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Gathering the wheat. Who are the wheat? Believers. And put the wheat in my barn. What is the barn? Yeah, the barn is the messianic millennial kingdom that Jesus is referring to. The barn is the messianic kingdom. Put the believers in my barn, in my kingdom. And what am I going to do with those who are tares? Here's what we're going to do. Gather together the tares and then bind them. Bind them in bundles and then we're going to burn them. What is the burning? Hell or lake of fire. It's, it's, it's that's how you interpret the passages. So this is why he says in Matthew 7, many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name and in your name cast out demons and do miracles and I did everything in your name. And he says what? I, did, I never knew who you, you were. It doesn't, the, the, again, that's Hebrew, okay? That's Hebrew language. It doesn't mean that God, that Jesus is, is not omniscient, that he doesn't know who they are. He knows who they are. But when he says, I don't know you, it means in Hebrew, I don't have a relationship with you. That's what it means, I never knew you. I don't have a relationship with you, no, and don't pretend that we had one. You didn't want me. You pretended to have a relationship with me, but you didn't. And you did all these wonderful religious things in my name, but you never, you never were part of the program here. And so they go into, obviously, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. So, here's, here's the application for all of this. And I know that's probably longer than what you want to do, but it, it's important to tie all these things together, okay? So, Satan sows unbelievers among believers, but how it happens is because someone goes to sleep, okay? Someone goes to sleep, okay? So, if your son or daughter comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I, I met this amazing person. Yeah? What church do they go to? Well, they really don't go, but we're, I'm working on him. Or oh, the, the, he's a devout Mormon. 
He grew up Jehovah Witness, mom, but he doesn't practice that anymore. Um, the parents who say, okay, let's try the missionary dating, that parents asleep. They're just asleep. They're, they have no idea of the spiritual danger in that. No idea. No idea what someone that's an unbeliever can do to a believer. It will lead, the stats on that are high in divorce. Um, they'll have kids, but eventually they'll be divorced in no time because they're unequally yoked. And here's the thing. Let me add one more thing to this. Even if your kid comes to you, well, they're a Christian. What church should they go to? They go to the Stay Puff Marshmallow Church, um, you know, uh, uh, First Baptist Candyland or whatever the church might be, okay? And you know it's a cotton candy version of Christianity bordering on woke. And they love Jesus, but they're woke. I'm telling you right now, that's not being, un- that's not being yoked together with that type of believer. Because if you come with a, a spiritual maturity that's up here, and then you're gonna marry someone that's at Cotton Candy Land, First Baptist Candy, they, they don't match. And you should frown on that. Say, no, your maturity is not where it needs to be. Here's the thing you got to tell people. You need to run to the cross as fast as you can if you're dating, and you look to your side of who's running as fast as you to that cross. And if they're not running that fast, ditch them. Because they will be the ones that cause the problem in your family. And how do I know that? 20-something years of counseling. That's how I know it. That's how I know what happens. Now, let me ask you this. What else puts people to sleep so that they're not aware, they're not on guard with their families, their kids, they're not on guard even with their spiritual walk? What puts people to sleep? Christians. A good life? Affluence? Yes, that's one of the major problems of Laodicea. Laodicea doesn't even know their spiritual conditions, but they were wealthy. Laodicea sold uh, ISAV that no one else in, in Asia Minor sold, and they made tons of money. And the people in the church were selling this ISAV. They also sold black wool, which was very rare in the region. And so they had a rarity of commodities with the ISAV and the black wool. And so the people in the church of Laodicea were very wealthy and affluent. And you know what they did? They took their wealth and affluence and actually thought it was because God was blessing them over it. And when Jesus does the evaluation, what does he say? You're pitiful, blind, naked, poor. You don't even know your own spiritual condition because your affluence has blinded you and made you useless to me. Now, here in America, we're affluent. And it's, it's lulled a lot of people to sleep. A lot of Christian Americans. I'm not saying you, but nationwide, affluence has hurt people. Look, I talk to people in the Bible Belt all the time. And, you know, right in the heart of it. And you know what they tell me? It's just cultural Christianity. 
Everyone does it. It's a part of networking. It's part of how you get your jobs and things of that nature. You have to have a good reputation in society. And, and, and that's how you play the game. That's how you get jobs. That's how you network and stuff like that is through your showing up at church. But there's nothing real behind it. And, and so that kind of Christian, according to the Messiah, is useless. That's the idea of I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You're useless to the Messiah. So if you're useless to the Messiah, that means you can't fight the culture war that we're in. Because you're more worried about your affluence about what you're, what you're going to do and where you're going to travel and wh what bigger home you're going to have and what a pool you're going to have. And you're worried about all this junk and it's taken your, uh, your mind away from the things of Christ and made you useless to him. And hence, you can't even fight. You become part of the problem. And we, the remnant, the Philadelphia element, have to deal with your mess. Now, we'll deal with your mess, but we don't appreciate it as the remnant, your mess that you create. But we'll deal with it. But what do you think the Lord's going to say to that person? You wicked and lazy servant. So you went and buried your talent, didn't you? Oh. Take the talent from him. And give it to the one that has the ten talents. For he who has will have an abundance and will be given more. And he who doesn't have, that which he has will be taken away from him. And what does that mean? He'll lose his rewards. He'll lose all rewards for that nonsense. And throw him out in outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, outer darkness is a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't refer to being cast into hell. Outer darkness refers to being thrown into the streets of Israel, in, in the streets of Jerusalem, because everybody's home was behind gates, and they didn't have, like, front yards or anything. You went in the streets. The gates were up, and you went through streets. There's no light on the street. The only way you would get light if you were invited inside someone's house, and you were let in through the gates, and then the gates would close, and you would be inside uh, somebody's home and compound, so to speak. And in that compound, you would have a banquet or a feast or a dinner there, which would be lit up at night. The concept, then, in the Hebrew idiom of being thrown into outer darkness is meant that you're excluded from the feast and you're out in the darkness. And the, the principle is you're excluded from reward. Now, what about weeping and gnashing of teeth? We'll say, well, I see that in hell passages. Really? Take a look again, because they're referring to believers. Now, I understand one passage will have weeping and gnashing of teeth in regards to hell, but the, the term weeping and gnashing of teeth, again, is a Hebrew idiom, which means extreme regret. And Jesus will use it interchangeably for unbelievers and for believers, that believers, when they lose rewards, will have weeping and gnashing of teeth, which means they will have extreme regret because they lost rewards for being asleep. And hence, the idea of being cast out doesn't mean that they're cast out of the kingdom. They're cast out, uh, they're cast out basically, they're excluded from rewards. 
they're taken away from them. That's what the Hebrew idioms mean. Um, and so it's a big deal. It's a big deal to be asleep. Um, they're, they're, in my early Christianity, when I was serving early on, I, I think probably, probably in the first five years in ministry, I was asleep. Just totally asleep. Didn't get it. I didn't understand things. And I was learning. I was young, green. And because I, because I was asleep, I was prey to following men who write books, who are popular, things of that nature. And eventually I woke up, and it took me a long time to wake up. But once you wake up, you start seeing things for what they are. And you see that it's a sham. You see it's a problem. And you, you realize, oh my goodness, I've been asleep now, I was a believer, but I was asleep. I was asleep doing ministry, guys. Asleep. Not seeing it. And so I'm telling you, it's a real condition you can be in. I was in it for at least five years. At least five years. Until I finally started breaking away. And once I broke away, I understood what the Word of God was telling me and not what men were telling me. Not, and I'm talking about you know, the popular people. You know, in, in Christendom, the Christian celebrities out there that write all these books and stuff. When I, start, when I woke up, I realized, oh, my goodness, they're all wrong. They're all wrong. Oh, my gosh. And how are these guys the best sellers? I, I looked at the top ten books once I woke up, and I said, all these guys are, are useless. They're all taking the scriptures out of context. And I finally realized it. I was asleep. Just asleep. And I think I know why. It was, it's comfortable to be asleep, guys. It's very comfortable. And um, because when you were asleep, you go through the motions. You're doing your little Christian thing. Oh, isn't that nice? And you put the bumper stickers on the back of your car. I love Jesus. And, and you, you, you just, you know, you're, you're playing a game. And it feels comfortable, but you're really not making an impact. You're really not doing anything. You're just going through the motions. And that's what I was doing. And quite frankly, it's very comfortable. Quite, quite comfortable, because there's no stress, because the enemy is not attacking you, because you're, you're on his side, and you don't even know it. You're not a threat to the kingdom of darkness when you're asleep. That's what he wants you to be, is a zombie walking around, and there's too many Christian zombies, and I was one of them, and you don't make an impact. You don't do anything, and, and the enemy leaves you alone, so then the minute I wake up, guess what? Not only do I see what's going on, but then I start getting the attacks, Oh, you want to wake up, Brandon? I'm going to do everything to put you back to sleep. And by the way, Brandon, I, I'll leave you alone if you decide to go back into your, your merry slumber that you were in. And then the attacks will stop if you just back off and go back to sleep. But here's the thing. Once you're awake, it's hard to go back to sleep. Now, you can put yourself back to sleep, but once you're awake and you see things for what they are, it's like going into the matrix, right, you know, and all of a sudden realizing the world that you're in is not real, and then all of a sudden you're in the real world and you got popped out of a tube uh, with, with Neo, and you're awake and you realize you've been hooked up to a machine that's been feeding off you. It's really hard to go back, isn't it? And you're never the same. And you can't be. But here's what irritates you. I know it already because it irritates me. You try to talk to believers that are asleep and try to wake them up, and they, don't, they refuse to wake up. And then they get mad at you for trying to wake them up. I know that game. It's hard, isn't it? 
It's hard. So, with that being said, I got to take a five-minute break, but that's how Satan sows unbelievers among believers. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.